Motherhood is Murder contains graphic and explicit content that may not be appropriate for all listeners. Discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to episode four of Motherhood is Murder. My name is Valerie Cation. Um, so for some reason in my notes, I had this as episode three and then realized, nope, we're further ahead than I realized. This is episode four. Um, so this episode is going to be a little bit different than the past three. Each month, what I plan to do is explore three cases and all within an overarching topic. And then we'll explore the topic more in depth to gain further understanding. And then to consider this within the context of each of the cases we covered. So this week is a, um, is a topic conversation. And for those of you who love a good case, I'll have a bonus episode up on the Patreon. So each month on the Patreon, the bonus episode will land the last day of the month. So if that's the 30th, it lands on the 30th, 31st, then you get the idea. So become a member and gain access to get that additional episode. And this month, we're going to cover the case of Joe Geely, who is an 11-year-old boy murdered by his classmate in Barrie, England. It's definitely an interesting one. And um, so I hope you'll go and check it out. So the topic is staying the same for the month. But we'll add an additional element to it in considering the role of rejection um, in humanity, really, what how we feel when we're rejected and um, what that could lead to. On an off-topic note, I still have congestion. I'm not sick, but I believe I have allergies and I haven't had seasonal allergies in years. <laughs> so I'm hoping this doesn't influence the show too much, but we'll see what happens as we go. Right. All right. And then also on an off topic, um, I spent a little downtime resting this weekend, which was necessary. I had a super busy week last week and, um, trying to fit in a number of things. And I ended up, um, watching the Netflix documentary on Malaysian air. I think it's, uh, MH370. Is that what it is? I feel like I'm getting a mind blank here, but um, it was pretty good. You know, check it out. There was a lot of things um, that I learned because all the facets were put together in one cohesive way. I feel like when those events were going down and that became such a mis mystery, right? Like how do you lose an airplane with a bunch of people on it? How does it just go missing? Um, it was coming in pieces through the news and there was so much speculation as to what was going on. A lot of conspiracy theories, things like that. So, uh, this documentary, it's kind of put it all together and explored a couple of the theories, um, not the, the outlandish ones, which I kind of wanted to hear, but, um, some of them were, um, or I guess more that the, some of the ones are more researched by journalists. So um, yeah, check it out. It's on Netflix. It's like three episodes, I think of an hour. So it doesn't take too long to watch it. So it's a good one. 
So in this episode this week, we will discuss some of the characteristics of teen boys who will go on to murder either in their teenage years or shortly afterwards. I wanted to conduct this research to see if it had any bearing on the cases we covered this month. Um, the research also provides clues as to who may perpetrate in the future, and as parents, teachers, and community members, how we may determine who might need some services to better their futures, right? So noticing the signs of a potential perpetrator and a potential victim might help us in the long run offer services that are needed. Homicide is as old as time. In the Bible, Cain murdered his brother Abel, in essence, opening the cleft of possibilities when it came to violence and mayhem. And although a parable, the story is a testament to the most violent and offensive acts that we all can be capable of given the right circumstances. Teens and children are not an exception. Although teen murders are not new, the research into the rates of violence and the antecedents to homicide is relatively new. In a 1983 study, researchers noted a rising rate of lack of empathy among teenagers. Their study, which is linked in the show notes, determined that assaults learning issues, and an inability to cope with stress led to homicidal acts. A 1993 study reviewed the rising rates of homicide among adolescent males. This study noted that teen males who take up a population of 3.3% committed 5.6% of all murders. So I know these statistics and percentages can be really confusing. So if we say that teen males take up a population, this is in 1993, of 3.3% of all people, right, on, I would assume this is United States, because this is a US study, then they committed 5.6% of all the homicides. So if you look at percentages, they're taking up a pretty small percentage of the population, but a larger percentage of the homicides that are happening collectively. So the study also determined that males were 10 times more likely to commit murder and black males were six times more likely to commit murder than white males. Of course, we need to consider that there are other factors um, when considering black males versus white males. And I don't think that was part of the study in 1993, but I could be wrong. Of the males who were studied and went on to commit murder, 65% of them had access to firearms. Now, we talked about access in the um, episode two with Philip Chisholm, where he had access to his teacher during times where she would be alone. So having access does make a difference um, when it comes to a potential perpetrator. So perpetrator who has access to firearms and is going to use a firearm in a homicide, that could be a major contributing factor in that homicide. So males tended to target a friend or acquaintance, whereas females would target either friends or family members. And we will spend some time discussing female teen perpetrators. Um, the cases that have come up 
out of those are incredibly disturbing. And so I wanted to take a little break from that, cover some other topics and then go back to it. And um, so that will be in some subsequent episodes uh, that will kind of explore the the, um, female perpetrator side or offender side. The most comprehensive study I could find was conducted in 1985. And this is the one which I will primarily discuss. Uh, We'll also review this study against the cases we previously discussed in this podcast. So say you're just tuning in now, and this is the first first time you've come to the podcast, um, you can certainly listen to this episode and then backtrack. uh, And you could also listen to the previous episodes and then listen to this one and get enough information. So you could do it either way. So I'm trying to say to review this study, this 1985 study in entirety, you can visit the show notes. Um, You're welcome to review the study. It's all right there. So the study evaluated nine males who were clinically evaluated and later were were arrested for murder within six years of discharge and 24 delinquent males who did not violently offend following juvenile detention. So in the study, the term delinquent refers to an adolescent who was determined to have committed a crime, went in juvenile court, was determined to have committed a crime may have served time in a local detention center or jail. Uh, so that's the term. So we're not, we're using the term more in a legal sense than a colloquial way of saying, oh, that person's just a delinquent, which means they're not necessarily going to contribute to society in the future, but kind of more into the legal term for a delinquent, not following law, right? So the study was conducted to predict violence and to consider ethical issues of intervention to prevent violence. So really a lot of what we're doing here is kind of looking at these cases, trying to figure out how do we protect, predict violence and then the ethical issues of how do we intervene? What do we do? Uh, What's the best way to support people? It was determined in the study that five characteristics were present in all offenders who later went on to commit homicide. So these are from the nine males that were evaluated. So remember, there were nine males evaluated that did go on to murder someone. And then there were 24 males who were evaluated that did not. So just kind of give you an idea, the five characteristics here were for the nine that did go on to murder. So the five characteristics were psychotic symptoms, major neurological impairment, psychotic first-degree relative, violent acts during childhood, and severe physical abuse. So before we go into the study a little bit more and then into previous studies that were evaluated within this study, um, and they were all around violence in adolescent males, I thought it might be interesting to look at the three cases we covered to determine if any of these characteristics seem to present uh, in any of these cases. And this is speculative. This isn't, this is just me kind of looking at things and saying, this is what we know about these characteristics. This is the uh, research on the characteristics. And does it seem to apply to these cases? So we'll first look at psychotic symptoms. So I think at first we need to determine what is meant by psychotic, because I think it's used in so many different ways. So the National Institute of Health defines psychosis as, quote, 
The word psychosis is used to describe conditions that affect the mind, where there has been some loss of contact with reality. When someone becomes ill in this way, it is called a psychotic episode. During a period of psychosis, a person's thoughts and perceptions are disturbed, and the individual may have difficulty understanding what is real and what is not, end quote. So that's the definition. So as we consider the cases we discussed this month, again, we can only speculate as to whether the perpetrators were under a period of psychosis. Defense attorneys in all three cases called experts to testify in court that each of the offenders were indeed having a psychotic break. However, in all three cases, the defendants were determined to be responsible for the murders and therefore not under a psychotic condition at the time of the murders. There were instances where fellow students reported Philip Chisholm, he's in episode two in the Danvers case, muttering to himself. But if this is in, if this is evidence of psychosis, it's undetermined. I don't, didn't see that he was um, determined to have psychosis prior to the event, um, prior to the murder. Um, there was just some mention about him muttering to himself, but you know, I talked to myself too. So who knows, <laughs> you know, and hopefully I'm not psychotic. <laughs> hopefully I'm not right. So the second characteristic is a major neurological impairment. So as we will discuss when diving into the facets of this study, many of the subjects studied had previous brain damage due to falls or accidents. We'll get into that in a little bit. It is unknown if the offenders in the cases we covered had brain damage. However, we can speculate that in two out of the three cases, this may have been the case. So football is a leading contributor to brain injury. And though it is unknown if Nate Fujita, who is in episode one, had experienced brain injury from playing football, some journalists had also questioned whether it was a contributing factor. And I believe there's a Boston Globe uh, issue um, article, excuse me, that was out that does explore the brain injury and the Fujita case. John Odgren had confirmed neurological disability um, as a result of a de developmental condition called Asperger's. So, you know, let's go back to episode three, where we cover um, some of the um, aspects of Asperger's and um, learn a little bit more about that if you want to. So the third characteristic is psychotic first-degree relative. Of all the three cases we covered, Philip Chisholm is the only offender who we know from court testimony may have had a first-degree relative with psychosis. His grandmother has suffered from what was determined mental breaks and was hospitalized. We also have to realize, too, that she was, this was happening in the 1960s, and at some point, like, to cover um, mental health in the 1960s because there was a lot we were learning during that time, if I could say it as nicely as possible. Um, and so it's hard to know if she was having actual psychotic episodes or if it was something else. You know, so anyway, I think more research into that time period might be interesting for us. But the next characteristic is violent acts during childhood and parental abuse. You can kind of put both of these in the same area of concentration. 
Um, I haven't found any evidence in all three cases of any of the offenders suspected of violent acts prior to the murders they committed. I think the only one that had any mention of violent acts was John Odgren when he was transferred from school to school, but there wasn't anything specifically outlined as to what the acts were or why he was transferred so much. Um, additionally, I found no evidence of parental abuse in any of the offenders. Uh, and that doesn't mean it didn't happen. I just can't substantiate it if it did. And it didn't come up in court either. So, uh, you know, court testimony in all those cases did not mention parental abuse. So as you can see in the cases we covered, there's no big bells ringing or sirens going off, right, with these offenders. I think Philip Chisholm is probably the closest where he may have had some psychotic episodes. He had a first-degree relative with psychosis. There are a couple more of those kind of going off. I would say in the John Odgreen case, um, you've got the neurological impairments and um, that kind of stuff, but that doesn't mean that someone's going to be violent and kill someone because they have a neurological condition, right? So, um, it's interesting. So the study, this 1985 study also determined that mental illness was a factor overall in homicidal offenders. 77% of 100 murderers received a psychiatric diagnosis, including schizophrenia, manic depression, psychopathic personality disorder, and epilepsy. And I want to pause here just to inform you that many years ago, actually not too long ago, quite frankly, but hopefully it's many years ago, um, epilepsy was considered a psychiatric, not a neurological condition. So this study buys into that theory that is more psychiatric. And so for our, our purposes, I'm not going to go into too much discussion of this since we know so much more about epilepsy now. Um, so one aspect to consider is just about all these offenders in the study had suffered brain injury due to falls, accidents, or severe abuse to the neck and head. So these blows can disrupt the brain resulting in epileptic events. So we have to consider the epilepsy as being potentially from trauma to the brain. If you look at the offenders in all these three cases, mental health most definitely played a role in each of them. Nate Fujita suffered from major depress depression. Philip Chisholm had gone through a long period of disruptions in his living situation and would have benefited from counseling. Maybe he did receive counseling, by the way. I don't know. I just didn't see that he did. But uh, that's one thing to consider, especially with past history, right? We know about his family. And John Odgren suffered from a number of mental health issues from a very early period of time in his life. So at this point, I want to review a little bit of the history behind the study when it comes to adolescent homicide. We've discussed considerations and studies during the 80s and 90s, but what about studies before this time? Studies in the 40s, 50s, and 60s focused on social and psych psychodynamic factors instead of neurobiologic factors. Those conducting studies determined that children acted out of a parent's unconscious wish with brain abnormalities and abuse highly underrated as causes. So a study by Smith, and this is all in the 1985 study. So if you want to read the whole study, you get a lot more information. There's also additional places you can click in to read into these specific individual studies. 
So a study by Smith stated that the eight adolescents that were studied suffered from early, what he quoted as deprivation and had underdeveloped egos those make, and that made them vulnerable to aggression. In 1978, McCarthy studied 10 teenage murderers and found that, quote, narcissistic disturbances and impaired self-esteem regulation with rage contributed to the murders. A study by King determined that parental, quote, brutality contributed to homicidal behavior. Brutality would equate child abuse at this point. King studied nine adolescents that were all, quote, singled out for abuse, and that this combined with repeated violence and a violent environment led them to master their own trauma by controlling others in a similar way. So I think we're getting a little closer to our understanding of this now, where if you look earlier in earlier studies, they had felt that parents still had a lot of control over what their child's action was. So their child was committing murder because the parents had this unconscious wish for that to happen, right? That's what they were thinking. Um, and then more of this of the studies were getting into what well, what is the, you know, um relationship with the abuse? Like what does abuse do? What does a violent a violent environment do? And then they started kind of bringing that in. And then King also determined child sex, sexual abuse and exposure to extreme violence as contributing factors. So again, we're getting a little closer to those contributing factors now. And then continued studies determine parental with what's called a maladjustment, which is also abusive action, chronic alcoholism in a parent, psychosis, previous incarcerations of a parent, and later studies went on to look at learning deficits and I have now neurological problems as contributing factors, right? So the studies are getting closer and closer and closer to what we see today. So further away from parental influence and a little bit closer into abuse of a child, that being more of the parental influence and the wish of the parent and more into violent environments and how the brain activity is um, operating. So we're going to return now to the 1985 study that we are, we're reviewing. So two groups were studied, as we mentioned, um, of them were nine boys who were previously neuropsychiatrically evaluated between the ages of 12 and 18, and they were later charged with murder. Evaluations occurred while incarcerated in a court clinic or in a psychiatric hospital. The second group were 24 incarcerated boys who within six years had no class A or B arrest, like no, no homicide, no violence. They had previously been evaluated between ages 10 to 16 years and while incarcerated for offenses such as burglary, breach of peace, probation violations, assault with a weapon, and rape. So a real large gamut there of possibilities. So where possible, all subjects studied had submitted neuropsychiatric records and detailed medical and family history. So in the study, the following was recorded as either present or absent in each one. And so here's the list of those things that was recorded. Auditory, visual, or olfactory hallucinations, olfactory is that sensation smell. Loose, rambling, illogical, or concrete thought processes. Paranoid delusion. Extreme sadness or depression. 
suicidal behavior, cruelty to animals, inability to stop fighting, frequent headaches, loss of consciousness, abnormal EEG, evidence of seizures, other signs of neurological abnormalities. And I want to add that since this 1985 study, there's a couple other factors that are generally looked at to predict homicidal behavior, and that is bedwetting as a child and uh, fire setting. So that was not something that was put in here, but something I wanted to note um, as I've heard from um, investigators and forensic investigators that look into these types of crimes. Additionally, perinatal problems and history of illness and accidents um, affecting the CNS or the central nervous system were considered. Family history included occupation of the parents, psychosocial problems, extreme violence, and child abuse. And at that time, child abuse was considered punching, beating with a stick, pipe or belt buckle, be beating with a belt in places other than the buttocks, deliberately cut or burned, thrown downstairs or thrown across the room. And we can be safe to say that, you know, we have expanded this to um, other acts as well um, in more recent times. So the nine adolescents who would later go on to commit homicide all experienced extreme violence as children. Psychotic symptoms were common with a paranoid ideation being most present. Three out of nine had been hospitalized and all had severe neurological impairments. Six of the nine had suffered severe head trauma, including falling from a roof and car accidents leading to a loss of consciousness. All had unusual EEG readings. Although their crimes would later appear to be mindless, impulsive, and unpredictable, a history of violence and violent action preceded all nine subjects studied. Violence included one subject burning his bed at age four, one too violent to attend school, one threatened a teacher with a razor at age 10, one choked a bird at age two and also threw a dog out of a window by age four. One subject had bizarre violent drawings, which made me think of Philip Chisholm in the case because he was drawing something when um, Colleen Ritzer, his teacher, approached him, talked to him about his drawing. We're not quite sure what he was drawing, but we do know he was drawing. And if we look at John Ongren, he did a lot of um, writing, kind of recording of things, which is interesting. Um, all nine offenders had first-degree relatives with psychosis and um, considerable abuse and neurological impairment. So as you can see, they, they, they were striking all of these boxes before they went on um, to kill. And they also had been previously incarcerated, remember. So the 24 adolescents that did not go on to murder had lower rates of psychotic symptoms, lower rates of neurological impairment, lower rates of abuse, lower rates of hospitalizations, and lower rates of serious violence, right? So the study determined that there's a coexistence of neuropsychiatric and family factors would most aptly predict violence and homicidal behavior in the future. And I included a screenshot of the table in the, um, in the show notes um, so that you could see the nine offenders and then the 24 non-homicidal offenders and the factors in the study and how they differed um, because, and take a moment that the 
table because I found it confusing at first, but just kind of looking in to see like how do these different factors affect these two different these two different um, types. You know, it's like they all kind of came in with similar type of situations that proceeded. They were involved in some part of study and some part of uh, acquisition of information, hospitalizations or imprisonment. And then they all went out and different things occurred based on their circumstances and what was there in their lives, right? So the study may seem extreme, and in order to be in the position to commit a severe crime like homicide, severe events most likely preceded. There are always cases that don't meet these guidelines in the study, but I think this is a good one when predicting who may be violent or homicidal in adolescence. As we look at the three cases we discussed in Massachusetts, I think we can see little threads that relate to the study, and that some of it is a complete mystery. Mental illness appears to be a factor in all cases, whether or not the subject was clinically evaluated. The trials in all three cases discussed the mental health of each offender, and each offender appeared distant and unfazed in court. And distant and unfazed could be a, a number of contributing factors, one of which could be processing a psychotic event, right? So as we conclude this episode, I want to discuss the patterns of at-risk juveniles. Serious offenses such as murder are 82% more likely in boys beginning at age 15 with a peak from ages 15 to 17. Of these, 65% of African-American boys are most likely to be arrested. Of course, we know that there are higher rates of arrest of African-American people in general. Early onset can predict more severe offenses against persons, public order, and property. If we consider John Ogren, it was noted in trial that his mental health was clinically addressed as young as nine years old. Nate Fujita had a clinical diagnosis of severe depression prior to the murder of Lauren Astley. Nate had also expressed shame over being Japanese-American. Philip Chisholm had a history of disturbance in his living conditions, a history of mental health in his family, is of African-American descent, and was seen muttering to himself and exhibiting odd behavior. Although maybe not the most obvious antecedents of homicidal behavior, they are all worth noting and being aware of in our work with children. If anything, it is another reminder to be aware, keep your eyes open, and offer help where you can. So I hope this episode was eye-opening to you. I also hope it didn't create a pathway to close the door on someone who might need help. If you're looking for something so extreme, and this study was just so interesting to me because it does show some of these kind of extreme, what we might think of as extreme cases and what could happen as a result of those. And it, we, we look at the cases that we covered, noting that not all of that was present, potentially. We don't know everything, but not all of it was. So there's still the possibility that a student could be needing some help, a potential perpetrator or offender in the future might need some help, and looking at the signs of what that might be might be awesome right? It might be helpful to them if they're starting to kind of go down a path that we can 
steer them in a better direction. And we can look at those 24, you know, potential offenders that did not go on to commit homicide six years later. Uh, we don't know any further out from the from that study after six years, but they had lower rates of a lot of these things. And they also had people who came in and worked with them. So all things to consider, just thinking of not closing the door if it's not extreme, but keeping an eye out for any of these possibilities that could be present. So like I said earlier, rejection is a theme of the Joe Dealey case, um, which will be posted on Patreon at the end of the month. And that's that bonus episode this month on Patreon. Um, I've done a bit of study on rejection and effects on the mind and body. And I'm interested what you think about this case. So join, join me on Patreon to view and comment and um, kind of let me know what you think about the case that we covered. This case, like I said, is going to bring us over to the UK. So a little different than Massachusetts. And um, we'll just kind of see how um, they handle something like this and questions that came up there as well. So next week, we're going to explore another facet of criminal behavior. Study um, the missing persons cases in Massachusetts and um, kind of look at this. These are uh, missing children cases, by the way. So get ready. I, I was thinking of covering these because as we're outdoors with our kids more, we're going to go to playgrounds again, all these kinds of things. It's reminding us to keep our eyes open, look around, see what's going on, check things out. And um, so I wanted to cover a couple of cases, not to scare people, but cases that intrigued me when I was younger and I was growing up and um, cases that might be interesting to you. And also cases I don't hear covered on true crime uh, podcasts all that often. So next week, we'll cover the case of Holly Perrinen, um, who is a 10-year-old girl who went missing and was later found murdered in Sturbridge, Massachusetts in 1993. So until next time, be good to each other. Do you love the show? Support Motherhood is Murder on Patreon and get some awesome perks, including a shout out on the show, bonus content, access to a private online community, and more. We appreciate the, the support so much, and it allows me to offer a case to you each and every week. Motherhood is Murder is researched, written, and produced by me, Valerie Cation. Music by Alexi Action. Check out the show notes for a list of my sources and ways to support your community.